Hello, my name is Anoa Changa. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Way with the Noah. My name is not a Noah Changa. My name is Brandon Sutton. Unfortunately, a Noah Changa is a much better name, much more memorable. But, you know, I've grown used to mine. Uh, Anoa cannot be with us tonight because she's at the DNC chairperson debate in Atlanta, Georgia. I guess it's in Atlanta. That's where she is. Huh. I don't know where it is, but she that's where she is. And hopefully when she comes back, she'll have great stories about the debate. And if you haven't done so already, you should go over to her channel and watch her interview with Sam Ronan. That's a great interview. I won't spoil it for you, but they talk about a lot of things. That Joining may not, me tonight, may or may not be on, not to interrupt rudely like I always do, but that may or may not be on um, on YouTube. It's definitely on Spreaker. That may or may not be up on YouTube yet. But it may be on Freak. I'm just repeating you. It's fine. Joining me tonight is another David. You may have heard of him. David Cobb of the Green Party. Well, but let's let him introduce himself. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, the, you know, it's my pleasure, of course. I'm sorry for the last minute substitution. But as I've said, Anoa is enjoying a DNC debate. Maybe we'll talk a little about that later. But first... Why don't you tell the audience, for those of, you, those of us who do not know you, who you are, what you, know, what you do? So, you know, I, first of all, uh, Brandon, I always tell people, if you even know who I am, it says more about you than it does about me. Because I do, I am proud of my, uh, my sort of bio or resume as a social change agent. But the corporate media makes sure that people like me are never really talked about. Uh, and that's because I am a straight up revolutionary. And I don't make any bones about it. I am absolutely a revolutionary because I believe that we must transform and, and, and absolutely restructure the society in which we live. Social, political, and economic institutions are fundamentally unfair, are fundamentally oppressive, are fundamentally exploitive, and we literally need to restructure our society. Uh, and... I came to that realization as somebody who grew up in poverty, not just working class, but in poverty in rural Texas. And through that process, Brandon, uh, uh, I understood in a very intimate way that the economic system was flawed and was a lie. But as a mostly straight white man, all the rest of the creation myth of this country that I was fed as a lie, the creation myth, of liberty, justice, and equality, I confess I bought it. Like most of us do, right? Whatever you're taught as a child, you know, is is reality for you. It wasn't until I worked in construction for a couple of years out of high school uh, and then went to college in my 20s, uh, and I will never forget uh, at that time, the first week of class as a freshman, walking up at the University of Houston and seeing a big banner that said, end apartheid now. And I thought, I'd like to end apartheid. I know what that is. That's terrible. And I went up and talked to the fellow there, right? And I will never forget, Brandon, because within 10 minutes, I'm in an argument with this guy. And the argument was because this joker had the audacity to tell me that just because I was a student at the University of Houston, I was inadvertently supporting it. He had some crazy theory about how uh, my tuition money was going to invest in corporations doing business with South Africa. And then he said that the United States government was actually supporting South African apartheid. And I remember, oh, where did you go to school? This is America. We stand for liberty, justice, and equality. We don't do that. And of course, I tell that story as part of my own introduction to say I was obviously ignorant. I did not know what I did not know. Just like right now, I do not know what I did not know. But I, I love to tell that story because that fella did not humiliate me. 
He did not degrade me. Uh, he, he engaged me in conversation. I remember at one point he said, look, there's all this information on the table right here. But you know what? You don't seem to believe me. The library is 100 feet away. Why don't you go do your own research, come back over, and then we'll have another conversation. And, and Brandon, I like to tell that story because it showed me the importance of being a critical thinker, of questioning what we think we know, and then engaging the conversation. So all that as part of my introduction to say that started me as a social change agent. By the end of my freshman year, I was an active participant in the anti-apartheid movement at the University of Houston. Uh, within the following year, I was a student volunteer on Jesse Jackson's campaign for president in 1984. In 1988, I was a delegate for Jesse Jackson. Uh, in 92, I worked on Jerry Brown's campaign uh, seeking the Democratic Party's nomination. I learned a lot on Jesse Jackson's campaigns and Jerry Brown's campaign. Uh, on Jesse's campaign, as a white person for the first time in my life, I learned how to put myself under the leadership of people of color. I learned how environmentalists and organized labor could work together. I learned how women's issues actually related to economic justice issues. I learned about Palestine and foreign policy for the first time. But you know what else I learned? I learned that the Democratic Party's presidential primary is where progressive politics goes to die because all the energy, enthusiasm, and excitement that got lifted up in that campaign was squashed by the corporatist militarists who control that party. And from that experience, I went on to do what, what people would think of as more issue-oriented campaigning. I worked on a living wage campaign in Houston, Texas. I worked during, uh, in support of the UPS strike uh, back in the day. I, uh, I worked on uh, earth defense. Uh, I did a lot of things like that. Then I helped to found the Green Party of Texas in 1999. I managed Ralph Nader's presidential campaign in the state of Texas in 2000. In 2002, I was the Green Party's nominee for attorney general in the state of Texas, pledging to use that office to revoke the charters of corporations that routinely violate safety, health, and public interest law. In 2004, I was the Green Party nominee for president. And most recently, I have co-founded a group called Move to Amend, a campaign to abolish corporate constitutional rights. And I was the campaign manager for Jill Stein and Ajamu Baraka. So I know that's a long introduction, but hey, I just for, because corporate media never talks uh, about me or asks me these questions, I thought your viewers might like to know. Well, no, it was a great introduction, and you're here for a very specific reason, for a very specific topic, and I would love to go back and talk about some of those other topics you mentioned, especially your feelings on the progressive movement as it exists now and how it relates to the Democratic Party, but we should probably foreground uh, this new voting justice campaign that you're going, that you are... Uh, um, sorry, was it leading? Are you leading this campaign, or is I would it say that I am actively participating? That you're actively that let's say let's say that the Green Party is engaging in that you're that's actively true. participating in. Uh, yeah. Obviously, voting justice and the issues of the sanctity of our vote is on everyone's mind right now. Probably for the wrong reasons. I, I think we hear the notion of vote tampering being used a lot, or we, rather, we have been hearing it a lot over the past three or so months as it relates to Russia. And the ways in which Russia, quote unquote, tampered or interfered or hacked a lot of vague language, uh, the American election, obviously, or not obviously, but you'll explain it, that this is in no ways related to uh, that issue. I, I wanna, look, Brad, I'm glad you actually brought that up. Uh, I want to take that hat on. Let's just note that it's coming from the CIA and the FBI, these vague terms. Uh, it is a Saturday Night Live sketch. To imagine that the CIA is going to say, oh, no, a foreign government tampered with elections. I mean, this is insanity, right? There is I don't no know. evidence. We've... Oh, sorry. Go you ahead. know what there is, though? There is absolute evidence. Uh, thanks again. Uh, we got to lift up uh, WikiLeaks. Uh, uh, that we actually now know with certainty uh, that the Democratic Party primary was, in fact, uh, tampered with. We know for a fact that the Democratic Party leadership worked overtime uh, to cheat and violate their own rules to prevent Bernie Sanders from winning the Democratic Party's nomination. Here's the other thing that we know, that the voting system and the voting machines that are used all across this country do not give us verifiable results. 
The reality is that uh, almost a third of the voters are voting on so-called black box voting machines or, or DRE machines that do, do not give you a paper trail. It's completely um, uh, just an insane way to vote. Literally, corporations own the machines that we are voting on, and corporate uh, proprietary software are used to count the votes. So this is part of what we're doing with this voting justice movement is to say we need to restructure our voting system. Number one, we need verifiable voting. We need to vote on machines that have paper ballots, and we need to have mandatory audits of all elections and a mandatory recount in any election that is 1% or closer. There should be an automatic recount. Voters can rank order their choices. My first choice, my second choice, my third choice, as opposed to the current voting system that's forcing people to just choose one. Brandon, did you know that exit polling data shows a couple of things? One, we had the lowest participation of eligible voters in this last election than any time in the last 20 years. I want your viewers to let that sink in for a moment. That this critically important election, a a, a turnout, which is low, the lowest that we've had in 20 years. And then let me go even further and tell you that exit polling shows that half of the people that voted for both Hillary and Clinton, or Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, were not actually voting for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. What do I mean by that? Half of each of their voters said, I was voting against the other major party candidates. In other words, half of the people that pulled the lever for Hillary Clinton were actually saying, I was actually voting against Donald Trump. Half of Donald Trump, uh, people who pulled the lever next to his name said, I was voting against Hillary Clinton. That's the first time that has ever happened since polling exit polling data has been done. Ranked choice voting will actually solve that problem. And I'm not going to end there, Brandon, because our voting justice conference is also looking at the process of felon disenfranchisement, which is a way that poor people and people of color are being targeted by the racist uh, uh, class oppressive criminal justice system to deny the vote to large swaths of people. We're uh, looking at interstate cross-check, which was a way for poor people and people of color to be eliminated from the voter rolls. So when we talk about a voting justice conference, we're talking about the fact that this country has some of the least democratic voting systems between election integrity, between campaign finance, between access to the ballot and the debates, the voting system that we use. And I'm very excited to tell you this weekend, the very first one is taking place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We've already got 400 people registered and there's room for more. So go to the website, uh, jill2016.com. It's on the very front page. And Brandon, we're not going to end in Philly because we're also going to do the same thing in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in March. And we're going to do the same thing in Detroit, Michigan in April. That's right. The three states where Jill Stein attempted a recount, we're going to build on that momentum and build voting justice conferences to, in order to build a movement to transform elections in this country. Well, obviously, I started a little bit tongue in cheek by mentioning election integrity as it relates to the Russia hacking thing. Because <laughs> I, think, I think that when we, we think about election integrity, at least in the mainstream media right now, that's, that's what that's what the conversations revolve around, revolving around these vague conversations that have been started by the CIA and the intelligence community and have been repeated by the mainstream media to give. And so and I'm torn, but I would to be blunt to give a veil of whatever you would call it to the Democratic Party for their for the absolve them of their wrongdoing. Let's put it that way. Like this Russian narrative, whether or not it's true. Uh, has seemed to be uh, just being used in service of the Democratic Party, not changing. But your conference is interested in a variety of different ways in which the voting integrity in America is not, well, not as, doesn't have any integrity, as you put it so blankly, for a variety of reasons. And I, I'm looking through, I'm looking through the, the, these conferences that you have planned, and I noticed that you basically run the gamut. They run they run from the actual structure of the the voting process. Insofar, you're talking about voting machines, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
to things like the sorry to ways in which people are disenfranchised and that are not normally talked about. So redistricting, barriers to the ballot. I'm sorry, barriers to ballot access. Because this is really important: redistricting and gerrymandering. The United States of America is the only democracy in the world, and I'm serious about this, the only democracy in the world that lets the elected official pick their voter by drawing their own lines, right? Instead of the voters picking and choosing our elected representatives, the elected representatives are choosing their own voters, and then we vote. This is outrageous, and it's one of the reasons why in many cases, you saw in certain states, uh, you know, Democrats uh, win 60, 65 percent of the vote and yet only get 40 percent uh, of the uh, of the elected uh, representatives because of the gerrymandering process. So I, I, I appreciate you bringing it up. And I really wanted to go deep on that one because that is a problem. Oh, no, I mean, obviously, there are so many ways in which people are actively being disenfranchised and passively being disenfranchised in America. So ways in which people's votes are being taken or devalued. And so I think that the two main ones that we talked about have been redistricting, also the Electoral College in a way in which that skews people's votes to be almost meaningless in certain, you know, certain states, certain districts. I live in New York City. So, I mean, I yeah, I live in New York City. I live in New York, which is in New York state, obviously. So my vote is essentially meaningless. It's a, it, I'd rather it's meaning. It has meaning up until the point in which the state decides who it's going to go for. And under, you know, right. I mean, it's realistic. It's going, going blue. Like it's always going to go blue. So I am free to vote for whoever I want or not vote at all because my vote is essentially, you know, if it's not disenfranchisement, you know, uh, from the legal standpoint. Howard as a voter. You are not empowered as a voter because of how the electoral college works. And, you know, so so that's part of we'll be talking about the national popular vote, which is an effort uh, to abolish the electoral college. We'll talk we'll be talking about uh, the uh, electoral Jim Crow uh, that is basically being reconstituted through the use of Internet interstate cross check. Uh, and you know so again we're going to be talking about a lot of things that are normally not talked about which we think are profoundly important if we're actually going uh to make the the united states government a democratic government because right now it's not you know, d- democracy means the people rule demos kratia the people rule and the people govern we're not governing ourselves brandon the reality is there is a small ruling elite who literally controlled this country and they also control both of the established parties. Because I'm going to go deep here and tell you this. I think principal liberals or progressives have been lied to and sold out by the ruling elite of the Democratic Party who are taking their money and their marching orders from Wall Street America, big banks, and corporations. But, Brandon, I'm going to go deeper still and tell you I think principled conservatives have been lied to and sold out by the ruling elite of the Republican Party, who were taking their money from the same damn corporations, Wall Street executives, and big banks. At the end of the day, ordinary people are literally being ruled and governed by a shadow government uh, that is never up for election, but are completely controlling how our society is organized. And that, again, I'm a nonviolent revolutionary. I have a question. Do you find it hard to get people? So obviously, I think that you have you know, a great plan, a multifaceted plan. You're attacking this problem at all from every angle, uh, both the disenchantment that the system instills in people and also the system itself insofar that it's being made up of disenfranchising laws, et cetera, et cetera. But do you find it hard or rather in your attempts to popularize this issue do you find it hard to make people care about the process of voting? The November 8th vote is cast, and now some are thinking about voting. Considering, like you said, the way we do democracy, I would say skew towards the national, right? The, the, that's what's on everyone's mind. That's what people think defines the way the country is going to go. People get hyper-focused, they get worn out, and then as soon as it's over, treats democracy as a crisis 
like it, you know, ended by the voting process on November four year crisis. This big crisis, and to have it over, that they tend to not think about it after it's done. So, all right, rather, you know, that that's an assumption on my part. But do you find who are not already mired in this issue? to engage with the voting process, to engage with how much what their vote means once November has passed. You know, now we're in fe- now we're in February. How hard to really can say in four years. So Brandon, uh, thank you because I did get your the drift of your question. Uh, and the, the short answer is yes, I do find it uh, challenging and difficult because so many people uh, say, look, voting doesn't matter. Uh, we try to vote, and uh, the system is so rigged. Uh, and frankly, they have a very good point. But what I say is this. If you want systemic change, and all you ever do is go vote or pull a lever every two to four years, and that's the sum total of your efforts at significant or social change, you're wasting your time, right? But I'll also tell you this, Brandon. I tell the same folks. If you want systemic change and you don't vote for candidates who are calling for systemic change, like Jill Stein, like David Cobb, like Ajamu Baraka, uh, then you're wasting an opportunity. And so I try to encourage people to think about voting as a way, but not the only way. In addition to that, I really encourage people, uh, and like I do myself, to get involved in local elections. Because local elections don't get the same level of attention by the national corporate media, but there's a lot more power that we have at the local level. Uh, We can actually win races. Here's something interesting that I bet you didn't know. There have been over 10,000 Greens elected over the last 20 years. Right now, there are 300 elected Greens serving at the local level. Right now, I can tell you in the last four election cycles, Greens ran and won won 30%, almost a third, just underneath a third, but over 30% of the local nonpartisan races that we ran ran in. So one of the things that I try to do is encourage people to think about getting involved at the local level. And that local level actually has a lot of influence on our lives, even though people are not – People don't get the corporate media gloss that they do in, in other ways. So, yes, I find it challenging. The way I try to meet that challenge is to acknowledge that uh, their cynicism is well-placed. But also I remind people, you know, the ruling elite fought like hell to prevent women from voting, to prevent black folks from voting. To, they instilled poll taxes to try to keep poor people from voting. There's a reason that the ruling elite fights so hard to prevent people from voting because it is a way to exercise power. It's not the only way, but it is a very important way. Well, it sounds like you're talking about uh, just a comprehensive change in the way people view democracy voting and view their place in that system. And I would say that there is just, there just seems to be a, between the voter and the politician in so many different ways that we're, uh, we're just trying, but just by having, insofar that people need to be focused on the, at the local elections, I think that's absolutely true. I think we've seen in the past, well, on November 8th, we've seen that now 33 states have entirely Republican in governorships. So that's 33 states where Democrats are not in any kind of control. Progressives, you know, have lost control of the state. Democrats lose thousands of seats across America and still pretend as though they're the only viable avenue for progressives to enter the government. So about the Democratic Party, what do you, like I said, Anoa is at the DNC debate. What is your opinion on the takeover of the DNC that seems to be in its nascency? So listen, I'm glad you asked the question, and and I want to be very clear here. Remember when I said I don't know what I don't know? I don't pretend that I have the answer. 
What I have is an opinion on the question that you just asked. I personally do not believe that it is possible to, quote, take over the Democratic Party. I believe that corporate money, Wall Street America is like a cancer that is mastitized within the body politic. And I think that the corporatists and militarists and imperialists who actually run that country uh, are not going to give up economic power. They will cater with uh, some issues around race. They'll cater with some superficial issues uh, or superficial ways around gender or sexual orientation. Uh, but they're not going to actually give up control of the party apparatus. The corporatists would rather kill the Democratic Party than, than allow genuine progressives to take over the Democratic Party. And I say that again from history. Look, I worked on Jesse Jackson's campaign. And after he had the experience he and we had in 84 and 88, let's create an alternative organization to take over the Democratic Party and shift it to the left. That was called Rainbow Push. It was, it, it, it basically failed. Then four years later, Jerry Brown, a progressive uprising within the Democratic Party primary, squashed by the corporatist militarists who control that party. He said, I know what let's do. Let's create another organization, take over the Democratic Party, shift it to the left. That was called We the People. Four years later, Dennis Kucinich rises up, a progressive upwelling within the De uh, Democratic Party primary, squashed by the corporatist militarists who control the party. He said, I know what let's do. Let's form another organization, take over the Democratic Party, shift it to the left. That was called Democracy uh, or Progressive Democrats of America. Four years later, Howard Dean rose up, squashed by the corporatists. He formed Democracy for America. Look, at the end of the day, Brandon, it doesn't work. That's my lived experience, that this idea of trying to take over the apparatus of the Democratic Party is a failed strategy. And, and that's the reason that, with all due respect, and I mean great respect to Bernie Sanders, he's just wrong about the uh, idea of taking over the Democratic Party. And you know what, Brandon? Everybody is allowed to be wrong sometimes. Nobody is infallible. And this is an example where I believe Bernie is wrong. And I think it's, but what's really worth pointing out, our revolution, Bernie's effort, and Justice Democrats, and brand new Congress, and Indivisible, and We Will Replace You.org, uh, and Progressive or Bust, and Draft Bernie for a New Party. That's eight different constellations or efforts that I'm personally tracking that is showing that the Democratic Party is losing control of their own constituency. People who self-identify as Democrats are absolutely disgusted. And the DNC fight that's going on right now, the corporate media is working very hard to try to pretend like it's only between Perez or Ellison. But I'm glad you brought up uh, Sam Ronan. I'm glad to learn and not surprised that uh, Noah interviewed him. I'm going to now go and look for it. Uh, to read it, because Sam Ronan is the only one of those uh, candidates for the DNC who is willing to say, we've got to change the way the Democratic National Committee conducts the Democratic Party primary, because the DNC cheated Bernie Sanders. And that corruption has got to end. Keith Ellison is not willing to say it. Tom Perez is not willing to say it. No other candidate is willing to say it. So at the end of the day, it's very hard for me to understand how it is possible to actually, quote, take over the DNC whenever the DNC is controlled uh, by the apparatchiks. Well, we talked about this before we came on, so I feel like I'm repeating myself, but I think that the same thing that makes taking over the DNC so appealing and so attractive to people, like to anyone really, is the exact same thing that makes it so hard to actually take over. And that is the apparatus. That is, that is all the money. That is this infrastructure that people want to take over. But that infrastructure, even I would say divorced from people, has its own demands. And we've seen that. And I think the DNC race has been very enlightening because we are seeing again, well, rather, the DNC race, as we know, is being, it, the people who are allowed to vote in it are all Democratic establishment in some way, shape, or form. And so what we're seeing, we're seeing people have to do their best 
Ellison, Tom Perez, everyone, I would say, except Sam Ronan, uh, to speak to garner votes from the establishment Dems, but also try to pay lip service to, the, to all the grievances that many progressives had and keep as many progressives in the Democratic Party as possible. We know Dem exit has been a thing for a while now, et cetera. Et cetera. People are looking for coalition-style government. People are just fed up with the Democratic Party. And I mean, from my perspective, this race is not particularly interesting to me. And I, I, I'm not, I'm not because I'm cynical, but because I don't think there's an answer within the two-party system. Well, I'm, so from my perspective, uh, and, and I don't think that the answer is within the two-party system. And I think that you're absolutely correct uh, that the the what look we're already watching Keith Ellison uh, begin to moderate his, his language, his positions, and it is it is it is not funny. It is heartbreaking to watch him contort himself to try to appease the Democratic Party insiders and keep his his progressive principles intact. Because you're correct, Brandon, that Keith Ellison's task and Bernie uh, Sanders' task is to keep people in the Democratic Party. Do you know that Gallup poll data shows that 14 million people have left the Democratic Party since the primary? And that's with Bernie working his butt off to try to keep them in. This is one of the largest mass defections from a major political party that we've seen in the modern era, Brandon. And nobody's talking about it. Well, just, you know, just to correct you, I would, I think, you know, I, I take the position that, you know, I didn't leave Democrats. Democrats left me. Democrats <laughs> left me. Democrats left me uh, 25 years ago, 20, you know, with Clinton. That's when the Democrats left me, maybe before then. So as so, insofar that people are quote unquote leaving the Democratic Party, I think that's a, I think that's a, I don't know. Like that, I think that, I think that frame is problematic. Obviously, it's not your frame, but I think the real the real story here is that people are finally woken up to the fact that the Democratic Party is duplicitous. You know, it, it says one thing. It says one thing, and this is why I I'm, I tend to agree with you about Bernie Sanders and Keith Ellison. Insofar that I think their intentions are good, I think they feel like you know I think. They've been in politics for a very long time, and they feel they feel the constraints of that. They feel like Democratic Party is the only way to go, or rather the best way to go, and they're trying to contort themselves to make themselves fit just enough to get to positions of leadership to actually, or rather what they, rather what they should be doing is making the Democrats come to them. They should be making the Democrats come to them. And, you know, as far as Bernie Sanders goes, I have to say, I think he's doing a disservice in speaking out for them because it just gives them another face, another progressive face to hide their, their conservative ideology. You know, like we, we've seen him go out there and push, uh, push, you know, push these pharma bills to get, to be able to import drugs from Canada and for Democrats to stab him in the back. And it becomes at a certain point, when is helping the Dems hurting America? You know, like when, like, at what point do we say the Democratic party is devoid of merit simpler to build something new a coalition whatever you want to call it it's just simpler and it's less there is there's we're gonna have to fight them anyway so why not fight them from outside you know i i appreciate you uh sort of changing the frame a little bit uh you know because i started off as a democrat myself right working on jesse jackson's campaign then jerry brown i'll be very candid bill clinton turned me into a green right and if hillary clinton had gotten elected she would have made millions more Greens, right? Uh, and I think it's worth pointing out that Hillary uh, or Bill Clinton literally was one of the founders of a group called the Democratic Leadership Council, which was basically Wall Street financiers, uh, corporate interests. They are the architects of neoliberalism, the idea of privatizing public sector uh, decision making. Uh, the DLC of the Democratic Leadership Council doesn't exist anymore. You know why? Because they don't have to. They literally took over and run now the entire DNC. And if you do your history and do your research, you'll find most of the founders of the DLC went on to become, and some of them still are, in uh, leadership positions within the Democratic National Committee. So here's my sort of take on this. As hard as it is to create an independent political party, and it is hard. Um, I think it's more likely to succeed 
than it is to try to, quote, take over the Democratic Party. Uh, because I think your point about the allure, because it's got so much infrastructure, it's got so much, it's got all these things, but it's got all those things precisely because of corporate America wanting to give them all these things. I think you're right. We're going to have to have this fight anyway about what the heart and soul of America is. I think we'd be better off actually building a progressive infrastructure that is independently funded like Bernie's campaign in the primary was. One of the things that we can never, ever forget is that Bernie Sanders outraised Hillary Clinton and he did it at, what was it, 26, 28 bucks uh, average per pop? 27. 27. 27. 27, right in between. But at 27 bucks a pop, Brandon, we can actually do this. We can build an independent force. We can fundraise for it if we all pitch in a little bit. And that's something that I'm really interested in doing. And then the last thing that I'll say on this, because I do want to have the same humility. Remember my uh, my experience at the uh, apartheid activist in the 80s. No, no, it's not. It's not tricking if you got it. You know, if it's not bragging, if you got it, just go, go ahead. Well, I will tell you this. I might be wrong. Right. If I'm wrong and somehow the Democratic Party becomes a genuine progressive force, then I'll say I was wrong. and Let's get to work and work together. But at the end of the day, we've got to make the commitment that says there is a bottom line definition here. You've got to actually be for single payer universal health care is a fundamental human right. You've got to actually be for raising the minimum wage to a true living wage. You've got to be for transitioning away from coal and oil and nuclear power to clean, sustainable, alternative energy sources. We've got to be for dismantling the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization. We've got to actually be for a, uh, a, a new guarantee that education will be free, not only through high school, but college as well. See, there's some base level that we ought to say, you've got to be for that or you can't claim to be a progressive. And I don't think that the corporatists who control the Democratic Party in any way, shape or form are going to beat those definitions. But if we self-describe what it is, what it will take to earn our vote, then we will have power. See, I think that you're exactly right there. And so I think that whether you, whether you want to work within the Democratic Party or work outside of it to build a new party or new coalition or whatever you want to call it, the goal is really the same, to move American politics to the left, to start getting in the conversation these issues that have been, at least in this last electoral cycle, just uh, rather uh, wholesale been deemed we saw people, you know, we saw people call universal health care impossible, single payer health care impossible, free college tuition impossible. It's funny that's impossible because other countries have it, but that's, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. Look, uh, I, but I think this is really important, though. Like, so they said that those things were impossible. Not only do other countries have it, but I'm going to talk about this country for a moment. Remember that to be an abolitionist in the 1830s to call the end the enslavement of Africans was impossible for women to claim the right to vote before or during Seneca Falls Convention was impossible uh, for trade unionists to be able to argue that they should have the legal right to collectively bargain was impossible to end Jim Crow segregation was impossible for goodness sakes Brandon everything that is decent and good in this country was once impossible you know, and for that matter, the creation of this country itself, the idea that that we could reject the empire, the British Empire and, and create a new government was impossible. And well, Nelson Mandela said it best. Everything is impossible until it's not. I agree. But I would I would go a step further and say we need to start calling it out for what it is. It's not that things are impossible to do. It's that they're untenable for those who are in power to actually do them. And so far that the, their corporate donors do not want them done. And so that's where I agree with your second point that you made a while back, that one of the goals at least, or rather one of the goals should be to wrest control of what it means to be on the left from Democrats. Because Democrats, by nature of being the left party, have gotten to dictate what is possible or what rather what the conversation on the left should be. They've been able to say, well, hey, here's what we should talk about. And like, here is the left for lack of a better word, 
here here are our preoccupations here's what we want to see done here is what here's what we're about and as we've seen the democratic party at this highest levels are incredibly conservative they are incredibly conservative economically and also pretty conservative socially i don't know people like they're, they're not that socially progressive they're they're, they're still they're still at least they're still incredibly conservative i mean socially insofar that even barack obama had to evolve on gay marriage Hillary clinton was in favor of you no know, wasn't in favor of gay marriage until just these sort of like this notion that they're so evolved socially in comparison to who obviously republicans but not in comparison to their base and but so not in comparison to overall culture remember that uh it was not the democratic party leadership it wasn't even democratic party operatives the most progressive democratic party operatives it was social change agents working out in their communities that shifted the conversation around same-sex rights and same-sex marriage. It was ordinary people who actually were able to put their bodies on the line uh, and to, uh, to end Jim Crow segregation. Uh, it was ordinary people uh, who are able to actually be uh, building the fight uh, for uh, the rights of transgendered persons to be recognized as human beings with human rights. So I really think that you're making a very critical, important point here, Brandon, uh, about not allowing the Democratic Party at all to be the arbiter of what it is to be progressive or left, or for that matter, to be acceptable. I mean, I wanna actually engage ordinary people with the the concept that, that goes like this. I think that if there is a decision that affects your life, you ought to have an opportunity to weigh in on it. Not that you get to to, to be the decider, because there should be a collective process, but all of us should have a, meaningful, a way to meaningfully participate in any decision that affects our lives. That could be called economic democracy, could be called socialism, but I'll tell you what it can't be called, it can't be called capitalism. Because capitalism is an economic system that literally allows for the private ownership and control of the mechanisms uh, uh, for, for decision-making. So to me, I can go into any pool hall or bowling alley or barber, barber shop or beauty salon in this country and have a real revolutionary conversation without ever using any kind of lefty rhetoric or jargon. Because the ordinary American, regardless of race or gender or, or geography, knows that the system is not working, that a small ruling elite are in control, and they don't like it. I mean, not only that, but capital, under capitalism, everything becomes commodified, including our government. So <laughs> that's, that's a good no, one. That, Brandon, that I'm going to give you credit right now because I'm totally stealing that. That is a good one. No, that's it. No, that's, that's not. That's not even a joke. I, I mean, it's just, it's just the reality. Not we become commodified. Our labor becomes commodified. Our lives become commodified. Maybe not at the beginning, but you know, towards the end of capitalism. Once you get into late capitalism, like where profits tend have you no know, profits tend to fall, everything becomes commodified. And as we've seen, our government, our politicians, they were commodified. People bought them because why wouldn't you? It's just it's what it is in that front. It's not. Yeah, I think we're going back. There's nothing personal, but and so like and see and so, but I, I I guess I'm a little bit more radical than you, or maybe I point of view. I think because like oh, we need to get money out of politics. I'm like absolutely, we definitely do. We definitely have to get money out of politics. But you know what else needs to go? The people, you know, like it's not simply enough to you know get repeal Citizens United and go okay, Booker can still be there. Democrat. Cat- they can still because you know not a money is going to say no. I think the money, uh, or rather, to well, money you have to take money ball at all. You that this notion that money that we've seen repeated, regurgitated on both the left and the right is indicative of low morals. You know, like I'm not impressed by someone. I or rather, I'm not impressed by someone who would take money. And so, just the nature that someone would take, you know. $300,000 from Big Pharma and then vote against a drug bill that would benefit Americans tells me that the money is part of the problem, but a larger, there's something in, inherent to them that makes them think that's acceptable. And if, it, if it's not money, it'll be something else. 
they'll find there will always be a way to buy people with low morals but the you know but for money it would be power influence a job after so we definitely but getting the money out of politics will definitely make people with better morals more competitive within races and so that's what i would i mean that's what i would like to see i don't think that it's a I don't think that getting rid of money in politics is the you know the you know the, uh, fix all for this issue because I think the politics that we have in our government are you know inherently corruptible. Is there something internal to them? If in any way I gave the indication that I thought if we just got money out of elections that we would solve all the problems. Oh no, I was just saying I, I, not to. Yeah, because I, 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 I've not been effectively communicating. Uh, for example, uh, one of the things that I support as it relates to Citizens United can't just overturn one Supreme Court decision. Uh, like When it relates to Citizens United, I support a 28th Amendment to the United States Constitution that would abolish in its entirety the concept that money is free speech and, and to abolish in its entirety the idea that a corporation is a person with constitutional rights. Because this idea of corporate personhood allows uh, the wealthy elite to overturn environmental protection laws, worker safety laws, public health laws. They literally have stolen uh, our democracy from us, and then they use the legal system to legalize the theft. So I agree we got to get money out of elections, and we've got to go a lot further. Uh, so uh, that's part of the reason, again, why our democratizing elections slash voting justice conferences go way beyond. It includes 100% publicly funded elections, but we go way beyond those. And if you look at the Green Party's platform, uh, I think it really is a common sense, revolutionary call to restructure how our society operates. And I'm glad that you actually brought morality into the conversation. I actually think that that morals and ethics matter, and we ought to talk about it as if it matters. No, I agree. I think that capitalism, and it's not just me, is an inherently amoral system. You know, it's not immoral, it's just amoral. It doesn't have, or rather, the morality that it espouses is one of the most profit is, you know, money equals morality, for lack of a better term. I definitely think that when you, normally when I hear stuff like this is a common sense solution, I start to roll my eyes and go, okay, no, it's not. You're, you're just talking about deregulation. <laughs> you're, you know, you're just Republican talking about deregulation. Again, it's like, it's, of course it's common sense. It's like, no, but I agree that it's not necessarily that the Green Party's platform is that radical from an objective standpoint but subjectively within american politics it seems incredibly radical it seems like the notion of quantitative easement for student loan debt blew people's minds and it was like well, like why like it's not it's really not that complicated or radical and if, if you look at the you know the at the global level it just seems so radical because of the domination not even the not even the domination of the political spectrum, or rather, what constitutes political spectrum at the highest levels by Democrats and Republicans, but just the domination of the left by Democrats and their neoliberal agenda. And that's why, at least from my perspective, people want to go back and forth with Hillary or Trump, and they rather they did a long time ago. And for me, that choice was meaningless, not because Hillary was worse than Trump, because Hillary was, I think we've, even in, in hindsight and foresight, Hillary was quoted was better than Trump. But within this two-party dichotomy, this dynamic, we were always headed towards a Trump-like scenario in my head, like a Trump-like scenario. If it wasn't Trump, it would have been Cruz. If it wasn't Cruz, it would have been Pence. If it wasn't Pence, like, we would have gotten there eventually. And so we have to, you know, it behooves us on the left to understand what the resistance, you know, what resisting really means and how it encompasses the democratic establishment, how we have to also resist them and demand that they basically respect their base in a way that they haven't done in a long time. The Democratic Party does not. Oh, yeah. So sorry, people. Um, we are having going to, have to close up in about three or four minutes. So let's just, you know, get, a little, you know, last thoughts, anything in particular. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. I also want to thank David Grossman, the the, the voice uh, that you never heard, but uh, Brandon and I did, that actually made all of this possible. I also want to thank the Benjamin Dixon uh, Network uh, and the Progressive Army that is actually being built. Remember this, even if you don't agree with what you heard from me, you only heard this conversation because the Progressive Army is ordinary Americans and volunteers who have decided we're not just going to hate the corporate media we're going to build our own alternative media. 
So even if you don't agree with what you've heard from me, at least we're having a conversation that I think is critically important. The last thing that I want to conclude with is this. I think the challenge of our time today is how do we resist the neo-fascism of Trumpism without falling into the neoliberalism of Clintonianism, right? That at the end of the day, we have got to actually build a genuine progressive value system, a, a culture. We've got to actually do that independently of the control of either the Democratic Party leadership or foundation money or, frankly, big unions or uh, the, the MSNBC talking ads. It's going to be up to us, ordinary people working together and conversations like Brandon and I just had are a critical part of helping to make that happen. Yeah, I just want to double down on that and echo the sentiments. The most important thing to do is expand these conversations, expand the conversations that are happening at the grassroots so that they are being, that they are forced to expand them at the national level, that they're forced to expand them in Congress because people are talking about it to the extent that it can't be hidden by the mainstream media. It can't be hidden by MSNBC. People can't pretend like no one is talking about these things because everyone's talking about them. Uh, insofar that we are, at a crossroads right now, I think that one of the things that cannot be allowed to happen is we cannot allow the Democratic Party to position, position themselves at least as they stand today, the way they are structured, what their ideology is, what they are doing as the le only legitimate path to defeat Trump, or the only legitimate recourse if you have agreements with Trump. And I think it's very easy to be overwhelmed in these times of, very frankly, quite it's a quite scary time. Oh, yeah. It's very easy to be overwhelmed in these times, but we cannot allow it. the Democratic Party as it exists today is a snake oil salesman. You know, like it is. They are trying to sell you a solution to a problem that they are not qualified to solve, and that problem is Trumpism. You know, and so, our, have, our, our, our whole uh, frame ought to be: we ain't falling for no banana in the tailpipe. That, that's actually what we I are. try not. <laughs> We are, we are going to end on that because that was perfect. Uh, thank you for joining us for this stunted version of The Way with the Noah. I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Brandon Sutton. Thank you all, and have a good night. Peace.